Hi, all. Thanks so much for watching Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta, and today we are welcomed by David Hoke, who is the Head of Customer Experience and Wellbeing at Right Move Health. Thanks so much for being here, David. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. We are really excited to talk to you today because Right Move Health is obviously musculoskeletal. I can never say that properly, but we're talking to you a lot today about well-being and creating communities. And you have really amazing ideas on that from how this may shape the future of you know regulation within things that are related to mental health to how to motivate behavioral change. And one thing that I love that you were telling us before in the pre-interview was that people are good at discounting risk. So using rational arguments and logical, you know, here's a fact-based thing, isn't necessarily the way to go to behavioral change. You have to hit them in the emotional ways. So tell us a little bit about your experience with how important that is and how that really is the way to make tangible change. Yeah, I'll give you, I'll, I'll kind of talk about that topic and then I'll give you an example if, that, if that's helpful, right? So, so I think that, you know, we like to think that we rationalize everything. And if you think about whether it's healthcare, corporate communications, we talk a lot about here's why you should do something. And we explain the why. It's just like we say, you know, eat this plate of food because it's healthy for you. And we skip over that it tastes good. Well, all that's fine. But we know that we are actually emotional beings, right? We, If we look at the behavioral sciences, we're emotional people who rationalize our behavior. So when we talk about facts, it becomes a transaction. You know, and we don't we don't make decisions rationally. And so we always present things if it's a transaction. So what we want to do is we want to appeal to people's emotion. So I like to say people follow people, not information. And, you know, information is great. It's important. But you want to follow people. You want to be inspired and you aspire or want to be inspired. And if you can do that to get people started, then they care more deeply about the science. So, so one simple example I can give you is that, you know, if you went into a room full of people, we could lay out plates of food and ask people to pick the healthier option. And 90, 99% of the time, people would know that, you know, this turkey is better than a fry, piece of a plate of fried chicken. But we always go in and say, hey, eat this turkey because it's got the best macronutrients for you, right? So, so we don't need to over-explain. We just need to treat people like adults. And then most importantly, help them understand the emotion that comes from that. And you can appeal to their emotion by using stories, texting the people like them, which then gets them to believe it's possible for them as well. And we've done that. Uh, I did that at Walmart and some other places, Young Branch that I worked before. And it was really, really powerful. I find that story, uh, David, really interesting uh, because there's so many angles that you can then attach to that. I guess uh, as I was thinking about that example that you were laying out, what's the role when you were you were talking about people get inspired by others? So what's the role of potentially uh, mentors or uh, other other champions, as as they you would call it, that are uh, at that same uh, maybe meal and then maybe uh, choosing the right options and showing to other people that it's possible. Uh, there's certainly been a lot of work done there, but I'm sure you've probably been behind a lot of it. So do you have any other thoughts that you can share about how you get other people positioned to support these kinds of movements? Yeah, I think I think what's interesting, there's two pieces to that. Number one is if the, in that example at that meal, if the person does nothing but lecture everyone on how great the turkey is, that doesn't work, right? That's like not going to work for anybody. What, but if that person just naturally does that and talks about how eating healthier has changed their life, 
Like, hey, you know, I lost 20 pounds. I have more energy. You know, my blood sugars are better. Whatever the topic may be, why that was important to them. It's that story. So it's, it's, it's almost like the derivative outcome. Instead of focusing on eating a turkey, it's what the result of eating that was, right? And that's when it becomes really powerful. One of the things that happens um, when we lecture is we create a, an expert model. And behaviorally, the problem with the expert model with some of this is that while we respect the expert, if we fail, we can blame the expert for not giving us the right information. We don't have ownership of, the, of our journey. So, so instead of being an expert, if we help co-create, right, and set examples for people and then tell them the why, why not why factually, but why this, what this happened to my life emotionally, then they're more likely to try it themselves, right? Now, they might not talk about it. They, don't want to, they might not say, you know, I'm really trying to lose 20 pounds and get my blood sugar down because I feel like crap, right, or I'm tired. But, but they're more likely to, to think that, and then they'll start to play with the behavior, and when they start to feel the result, then they'll share it with somebody else. So it's more of an informal path to leadership than designating somebody the expert and then putting them in a position of having to lecture someone. It, that's interesting, the lecturing. You know, so the people who are doing that, I'm thinking specifically with smoking, because smoking blows yeah. my mind. Like, yeah, yeah. we all know it's bad. Is there something that in people that they want to have that experience of doing it and then be like living through the experience. Is there something to that that you can somehow know. help them realize that they don't need to do that? I mean, smoking so difficult. It's such a multi-stage addiction, right? So, so let, let's come to smoking, but let me go, let me stick with nutrition as, as an easier example. And then we can talk about smoking. I'll give you a very specific example in nutrition because nutrition is a great example of where people go to see a nutritionist, you know, uh, a physician, they get, they know they need to change their diet, right? And let's put, there's no absence of information about kind of how you should, there's, we can debate about what's the best diet, but we know, generally speaking, what's better than not, but they don't. So let me tell you one, one story that kind of uh, would support or illustrate this. So, so I worked with a woman when I was at Walmart. <clears throat> I didn't work with her directly, but she was part of one of the programs we built. And she was a serial dieter. She was overweight, 100 plus pounds overweight. And she had dieted off and on all the time. And so the problem was she would go to a physician and she knew she had to lose weight, um, but she would go and be committed and go and see her nutritionist and do great for a couple of weeks. And then inevitably she would binge on something and she had her secret shame, which for her was Doritos, right? She loved her Doritos. Everybody has something like this for me, it's cookies, right? So, so she'd have her Doritos and she would eat a bag of Doritos. And then what happens is she would feel guilty. So shame and guilt are what, what gets in the way here? Same thing with smoking, right? You, you sneak your cigarette. It's shame and guilt are underlying there. So what we did there was instead of talking about a specific diet, we said, let's make one better choice a day. That was the program. We had one better choice a day, starting wherever you were. So when she was trying to change her dietary behavior and she opened up the bag of Doritos, she would eat the whole bag and leave one chip. And the next day she would leave two chips. So what she was doing was slowly walking her way. Now, she still eats Doritos to this day because at some point she just loves them too much. But the point was we didn't lecture her never to eat Doritos again. And she hacked that herself. So whenever we tell that story, inevitably, someone has in their head their version of that, whether it's Twizzlers or cookies or something else. So I bet, I bet each one of you might have something you go, you know, I kind of do that and I don't want to. I should probably think about that same thing. How do I step it down? So it's a really good example of where that story then inspires other people to find some way in their life to do the same kind of hack because it's real. 
And that's been like four or five years now. She, by the way, she lost over hundred pounds. She went off her high blood pressure medicine. Her diabetes went away uh, and she's kept the weight off, but she's still eating Doritos. Um, so, so that's a great example of people following people now, because hopefully that story inspires other people, but using these small emotional triggers and, and, and getting away from shame and guilt. So, so you can apply that to smoking, probably have to think of a different example, but that's, I think, a really good example of a way to think about this. It's funny because I'm in a group, it's called E2M. And one of the things that they always say in there is all or something, which I think is amazing. Yes. Because I think yes. so much, so many times you hear that it's like you all or nothing, yeah. you know, and it's yeah. not, but it doesn't, but saying all or something, it doesn't give you permission to do the wrong thing. Cause it's saying like, do something. But it's also yeah. saying like, if something happened, like, it's okay. Okay. You didn't do an hour of cardio today, but you can do all or something. What, what is your something? You know, yeah. and I love that. And that's exactly yeah. your yeah. Dorito situation. Yeah. Perfection is not a lifestyle, right? Yeah. I love that. I love what you had to say, Stephanie and David, how you explained it. It reminded me of uh, Atomic Habits uh, by James Clear. <laughs> uh, happened to you know, be in a, in a lecture where I got to hear it. And, you know, it's the same point. It's like, you can make yourself 1% better every day by taking right. a small step. And so you just break it down into that micro step that makes it just manageable enough that you can get it done. So it's fascinating. And it's great to hear that example that, you know, of a woman who had tried so many different diets and then ultimately was able to break through because of, you know, these small steps that she was encouraged to take. I love that. I love that. So David, how do you move this over into the musculoskeletal world and into the movement world? Like what are the behaviors? Are they still diet related? Are they more exercise related? Are they other lifestyle behaviors? What are you trying to actually change in that? So movement's kind of foundational to health, right? So no matter what that movement may be, if you not only to physical health, but also to the quality of life, quality of life, right? So whether it's just wanting to pick up a child, uh, whether it's just want to interact in the world, just being able to move um, is really important. And so, so one of the things I think about is pain, unfortunately, is a really good habit for uh, habit anchor. So James Cleary, BJ Fogg, what's our anchor? If you're hurting and you can't do something you want to because you're limited physically, then how can we begin to use that to help you adopt long-term habits? So, so if the clinical care is right, right, assuming clinically you get the right care that you need, once you transition out of that, then really you're looking at long-term habit formation. And that habit formation really broadens beyond just physical health holistically to your entire your entire health, right? So that can include nutrition. It could include smoking again, right? So because, of course, what we do see is as people start to adopt one healthy behavior, uh, they then get momentum and adopt others as they go over time. So, so I think it's understanding those relationships, which is important. So long-term, what, what I get excited about is that um, unfortunately, musculoskeletal issues are ubiquitous. It's like 50% of America has one at this point in time and everyone will have one at some point. So if you think, and, and they're also not limited by employer. So programmatically, you know, it doesn't matter if we all worked for different people. If we all had a knee injury, we would still get our care, our clinical care, right? And it'd be covered by healthcare, but we would have a community ourselves because we would all have the same journey through that pain. So we could create our own support group to support long-term health so we don't hurt our knee again. So I use knees because I've had an ACL surgery and my daughters, my middle daughters had two. So whenever we're in an airport and we see that brace, we always immediately talk to us, the brotherhood or sisterhood of the ACLs, right? We always talk to someone. So there's a way to create community that supports those long-term habits so that you can continue to move to improve your quality of life um, and generally community health as well. And so you've commu created communities many, many times. And one of the times that you did it 
you know, and over a very long period of time was at Walmart. Mm-hmm. And that was something that you said you had, you know, you went in, you were tasked with some challenges and you really did work to tap into that emotion and build that community and help these people transform their lives in a lot of different areas. So why don't you tell us what that's been like and how you're applying that to your new role? Yeah. So the thing about Walmart that's so interesting is obviously they're a large employer, but it's the decentralized workforce, a lot of part-timers, so a lot of turnover. You know, and so when you try to think about that, um, you know, one of the limitations of classic health promotion or wellness in the United States is that we anchor to the health benefit plan. And so, you know, at a place like Walmart, where we're not 90% are on the benefit plan, there's a part-time population, which still works in the store, right, every day, um, but they aren't on the benefit plan. So if you limit your health promotion or wellness activities to just plan participants, you know, you're not getting everybody. So you're actually, and you may be excluding someone who's the most important influencer to that, to that person in the store. Same thing, at, you know, I was at Young Grants before Walmart, which is KFC, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut. Same thing. You have a Taco Bell that employs 20, 30 people. Only three of them are full-time that get benefits. The rest are you know, high school kids. But So how do we expect people to adopt behaviors when they don't have group support? We know that support is critically important to long-term behavior change, right? So so one of the things we did there was we said everyone's going to be eligible at a Walmart store or distribution center for everything we can where we're, where it's legally allowable, right? So so and, and if you focus on baseline healthy behaviors, exercise, nutrition, et cetera, those those are ubiquitous as well. They should be available to everyone. Like that. So so we can get everybody in there and then measure the impact on the plan or measure the impact on the business. But that's how we approach it. So I think that's probably the from a design perspective, that's been the most important thing to get over is that it doesn't have to be this this friction we create through eligibility. We exclude people immediately from the pool, which unintentionally removes support. So if you go to like a, a Walmart Supercenter at the time it was between three and four to 500 people, uh, total employee set, you know, but what you would see in there is it would be really hard to get the first set of people to start doing something, right? But then you would get a little cell blurring in there where like you would have two or three people doing it in the support and then it would grow. So there was a network effect inside the unit that, that was really interesting. So, and what we would see would we would have for every eight to 10 people that would raise their hand when we did interviews that said they were doing something, there were other people, usually about 10 to 20 more that were, that were participating, but didn't want to tell you yet, which was another key insight. When we measure engagement, we're really saying who's telling me they're doing something. That doesn't mean other people aren't, right? It just means they're not telling you yet. So, so that halo effect was something else that was interesting, which what we saw then was really good unit impact. So rather than, this is a big difference too, rather than look at just each individual's change, what's the collective impact of them on that, on that case on the box? At Young Brands, for example, I give you a really good specific example there. We had a, did a lot of work in Taco Bell in the U.S., and that same example, what we saw is when we could get like 50% or more of the employees actively participating in a way that we knew about in a program, we saw turnover drive down, right? We saw retention drive up. There was a Taco Bell in Detroit that went, I think, a year and a half. And this wasn't because of what we did. The manager was fantastic, by the way. They went a year and a half without any turnover, which in a, in a QSR industry is really phenomenal. So. So collective impacts, the other thing I don't think we talk about enough in the industry, we talk a lot about what did each individual do, which is critically important, but collectively, what happens to both the business, you know, uh, business results, the, the individual groups, health results, et cetera, because that's really where the power is. 
So, so David, I have a, I have a couple of uh, divergent questions here, and I'm trying to think about which which way to go. But let, let's go with the customer experience angle to this, mm-hmm. which you which you started bringing up. Uh, yeah. you're, you're trying to create behavior change. You're creating engagement. You're you're getting people together. You're creating communities, uh, and, and it's all yet about trying to make them healthier, make them make uh, you know improve their wellness. Where does the customer experience part of it come in? You know, is that just a, a function of the design in terms of how you engage people? Or is that the ultimate goal that you're trying to achieve? Like I, I'm trying to understand that element and where and how you weave that into the overall storyline. Yeah, well, I mean, there's two ways. So first of all, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's what I call a derivative outcome, right? So, so it depends on what your, what your underlying motivation. For me, the underlying, underlying motivation, the reason I got into this in the first place is because I like to help people, right? There's just been, there's a, there's an internal intrinsic reward from helping people feel better in their life, right? I think that's probably why you became a physician, right? You just want to help people feel better. Um, but there are derivative outcomes of that, right? And, and one is when you feel better, you treat people better, right? To get your mood's better. So, so more importantly, for the reason I focus on, I measure in three ways. I'll talk about that in a second. But the reason I measure in these three ways is because we need people to invest in this. And unless you can show them a bit, I mean, I like to think that CEOs would just invest to make the people feel great. And, and we talk that, but at the end of the day, they're a business, right? They want to get a result. So we have to link what we're doing to a, a result. I don't like linking exclusively to healthcare costs, especially in the U.S., medical costs in particular, because no one can prove ROI because there are so many factors driving cost in that and trend. But if you broaden that category, so the three categories I like to measure in in no, no particular order are health-related spend, which would include safety, workers' comp, disability durations, medical and pharma, right? So anything that's kind of that broader category, because each of those has slightly different wrinkles. Business impact, which could include net sales, could include turnover, or what I call attitudinal impact, which really is a lot about customer satisfaction. You know, and and you typically see Unilever did the first study on this. Unilever did a great job a long time ago linking customer satisfaction to specific well-being performance as well as retention and, and root performance. And then we did the same thing um, when I was at, at, at Young Brands. And we also looked at that three different times when I was at Walmart. And while it wasn't always statistically significant, there was a very good correlation between uh, stores that had high participation and customer satisfaction, specifically the friendliness score, which is when you break down customer sat, they measure clean, fast, and friendly in many environments. So clean, I say clean and fast, you can like nag people to do better, but you can't you can't nag someone to be friendly. So it's sort of that attitude one back. As you're putting this together, is there is there a clinical component to this program? Are you teaching you know people, clinicians, therapists, uh, doctors how to do this differently, or is this all being designed sort of in the background? Uh, in in sort of like how we come up with a program, or is it both components? I guess I'm trying to figure out how exactly are you building in all of these different components related to customer experience and engagement and uh, changing behavior into a clinical program? Great question. There's two ways to answer that. The the first way is clinicians are people too. So so you know sometimes you know again back to where pe- people follow people and that information. So ideally. The healthcare setting needs a lot of help right now, right? Because of the burnout situation that's happening there. So I'd love to be able to penetrate that market. With with where I'm working right now, we're really transitioning from clinical. The clinical protocols are already baked. So the, the extent that we can we can impact the practitioner, that's wonderful. But our focus is really on 
the output, which is the broader all these folks were trying to serve in the communities that they touch. Meshing everything that you've done, all of your experience, you started thinking about how important mental health is in all of this. Obviously, it's something that's been important to you, but with the pandemic and with all of the screen time that people have been spending, you started thinking about how that could potentially change the industry and likened it to the industrial revolution. So why don't you tell us about that and give us a look into what the future could be? Yeah, so before I joined RightMove, I worked for Thrive Global. I was the chief well-being officer there, and that was a big focus on mental health and emotional health. And so there are three things that I'll give you the quick tip off. There are three things that are driving the future. One is this uh, incredible attention on mental health uh, universally, and technology is driving a lot of that. And, and so we know now the science is growing more and more. We understand the impact of, of too much technology on people's brain health. Uh, through there's actually an article in HBR, I call it the 85% article that referenced uh, how to get the most out of your teams plan for 85% effort. And they talk about the impact of technology on people's ability to think and what happens. They did some brain imagery there. I think it was Microsoft did that study. Um, so if we know that too much technology creates uh, mental health issues for people, right? Whether that's just overstress, it's because it's cumulative stress, it's the problem, right? So they don't get a break, it's a cumulative stress. And we know that, then don't we have an obligation ultimately to try to not hurt people, right? Uh, to be a little provocative, Jeffrey Pfeffer from Stanford wrote that book, you know, Dying for a Paycheck, which got into this early. Talking about the way we've designed work today has con high contribution to our mortality and morbidity. Well, if you compare knowing all that today to the Industrial Revolution, and I'll use U.S. Steel as an example, there was a big article in the 20s talking about how U.S. Steel was, uh, people were dying uh, in great numbers trying to produce steel. And as a result of knowing that, U.S. Steel put in the first safety program, which then was copied by other programs, creating the safety industry we have today, which is now regulated by OSHA. So if employers uh, you know, don't begin to adopt the new practices, these science-based practices, is it possible in the future the government says time out? The cost of society is so high, you're not going to. We're going to create rules that you can't do that. You know, you can't schedule six meetings in a row and and 17 hour work days for people, even if they're salaried, by the way, because it's just not the cost of society is too high. So that's, that's one thing I think is really interesting. The other thing that's going to drive employer well-being is there's a well economy. I think that there's such interest on the consumer side, just all of us as, as humans on how to get better. If you look at the spending in this category, you know, uh, globally, it's just growing like crazy. That pressure will inevitably make its way into the workforce, right? It's no different than the digital transformation. There's going to be a wellness transformation because when we all got these cell phones and we became so used to easy technology, we no longer accepted that old clunky technology in the workforce. It's going to be the same thing here as we get used to things that take care of ourselves. We're going to push that into the workforce as well. So I think there'll be Digital transformation is going to lead now to a well-being transformation of the workforce in the future. Amazing. Thank you so much for this. We've covered everything from the industrial revolution <laughs> to, to what's happening in the future. It was remarkable. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Very, very provocative. Thank you, David. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. And thank you all for watching. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.